Now, if I were to ask everyone in our television audience this morning what they consider to be the supreme tragedy in life, I probably would receive a variety of answers. When it comes to something like the supreme tragedy, it's somewhat of a relative thing. For instance, uh, those of us who are free to come and go as we please, uh, we might think of an individual in prison as experiencing the supreme tragedy. A person in prison might look on an individual in solitary confinement as the one who's experiencing the supreme tragedy. And the one in solitary confinement might think of a person on death row as experiencing the supreme tragedy. I recall when I was a little boy, I used to think the very worst thing that could happen to a person was to be blind. My heart has always gone out to person who, people who haven't got their physical eyesight. A sister Kate Adams, a very dedicated Christian lady who was a member of Rainbow Drive many years ago, lost her hearing. She has no hearing whatsoever. Here and I, her and I, when I visit with her, as I do very often, we talk about a lot of things. She can still speak audibly, and I write out whatever I want to say to her. She was telling me this one time that Helen Keller, who was born... Uh, blind, deaf, and also mute, couldn't speak, but when she learned to communicate, said that the sense that she wished she could have, if she could have just one of her senses that she had, didn't have from childbirth, it would be hearing, that she thought hearing was the most important sense that one had. And certainly, we all understand that the individual who has and doesn't have his hearing is certainly missing so much in this life. But I still, and Sister Adams agrees with me, believe that loss of eyesight is much worse than that. Have you ever closed your eyes for just 20 or 30 seconds and tried to imagine going through your life like that? Never being able to see your wife or your husband or your children or your parents. Uh, never being able to watch a ball game. Never being able to read a book. I've always thought that blindness was just a terrible, terrible thing. And certainly a tragic uh, condition to go through this life in. But as terrible as blindness is, friends and brethren, it's not the supreme tragedy. Believe God or Christ used, often used people's blindness to glorify his Father which is in heaven. At least we know that he did it in, in a couple of, on a couple of occasions in biblical times. Remember over in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, that man who had been blind from his mother's womb by the pool of Siloam, and when he had that confrontation with Jesus, and Jesus spit in the mud and took the spittle and placed it on the blind man's eyes and told him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash the mud off. You ever hear somebody ask the question, why did Jesus make baptism essential to one's salvation? Well, I, you can answer that question by asking a question about the blind man in John the ninth chapter. Why did, did, did Jesus spit in the mud, take the spittle and wipe it on the blind man's eyes and tell him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off in order for his sight to be restored? Now, when the blind man did as Jesus told him to do, evidently Jesus was testing his faith, it was Jesus who restored that blind man's sight. Not the waters of the pool of Siloam, not the mud mud that Jesus spread on his eyes, and it's the same thing with baptism. Baptism, evidently, is a test of our faith. And when we obey our Lord in baptism, it is Jesus and his blood that saves us. Obviously, not the waters of baptism or the act of baptism in and of itself, but rather it's part of our obedience unto Jesus that allows us to contact his blood, and his blood saves us. That's why Paul says in Romans 6, 3, and 4, no, you're not as many of us as were baptized into Christ, were baptized into his death. The reason we're baptized into his death is because that's where Jesus shed his blood, and it's his blood that redeems us. And we could quote all those scriptures, but time won't allow for it this morning. But anyway, Jesus healed this blind man. And Jesus, when the Pharisees were trying to attribute Jesus' power of healing to Beelzebub or to the devil, the blind man said in John 9 and 25, the Pharisees said that Jesus was a sinner. The blind man said, whether he be a sinner or not, I do not know. But this much I do know. Whereas I was once blind, now I see. 
And what he was saying was is that Jesus Christ healed him. The Son of God healed him and healed him of his blindness. So Jesus used a man's blindness to glorify his heavenly Father. So Jesus didn't consider blindness the supreme tragedy in life. Some other people might think that physical ailments of some kind constitute the supreme tragedy, physical impairments of some kind. And certainly it's heart-rendering to see people have to go through life physically deformed or with physical malfunctions of any kind. Brother Tim Gentry, who many of you in our television audience know to be one of the truly great men in our brotherhood, one of the truly great men in the kingdom, a great Christian man, was shot here a while back and through a young man that was attempting to rob him, and Tim is now paralyzed from the chest on down, and certainly that's a tragic situation. And my heart goes out to Tim constantly, but as terrible as that is, it's not the supreme tragedy in life. Jesus ran across many people when he was on earth who had terrible physical afflictions. You remember the 12th chapter of the book of Matthew when he took the man who had the withered arm and restored that arm, made it whole? Jesus used this man's physical affliction to glorify his Father, which is in heaven. In Mark, the second chapter, when Jesus healed the man who was sick of the palsy, Luke, the 17th chapter, when Jesus healed the ten lepers, Jesus used people's physical ailments to glorify his heavenly Father. And Jesus never considered physical ailments or physical impairments of any kind to be the supreme tragedy in this life. Other people think that uh, mental retardation constitutes the supreme tragedy. Some people might think that. I remember when I was a little boy, the terrible stigma that was associated or attached to mental retardation it was just uh, something that people were very much ashamed of. Many people who had retarded children would put those retarded children off in a home somewhere where no one would know about them because they were ashamed, because there was a stigma attached to that. The man who used to live next door to us, lived at the Labadee home, he boarded there, had been gassed during the First World War. In defense of his country, back when gas was illegal, they made it, it was legal, they made it illegal after the First World War, but this man in defense of his country had been gassed and it affected his mind. It left him retarded. And I remember how us little kids used to laugh at that man and make fun of that man. The girl across the street, not right directly across the street from me, but by diagonally, Donald Paul's sister, was mentally retarded. Many people used to make fun of her and ridicule her. Well, when I grew up, I hope I put away childish things and grew up to understand that mental illness, friends and brethren, is really no different than physical illness. And that one who is mentally ill is no more responsible for that illness than one who is physically ill. Yet, for some reason, people will attach a stigma to mental retardation. The mentally retarded person is no more responsible for his condition than the person who has cancer or the person who has tuberculosis or the person who has heart diseases or the person who has respiratory or physical ailments of any kind. Mental illness is just that. It's simply an illness. And certainly it shows the a total lack of understanding and a total lack of education and a total lack of compassion to make fun of anyone who's mentally retarded. We have a young girl back at uh, Rainbow Drive, Marilyn Higginbotham, who's mentally retarded. I'll go up to Marilyn when I have the opportunity and give her a hug. She's 22, 23 years old and I guess has the mind of about a year and a half old child. But when I hug Marilyn, she always responds. She, Our eyes light up and she knows that somebody has done something kind towards her. She needs love just like anybody else needs love. And her mother and father, Jason and Arthel Higginbotham, I have great respect for them because they take care of Marilyn in the way that they do. And certainly it's a tremendous burden, especially to Arthel. When I was up in Detroit, Michigan, before I was ever converted to New Testament Christianity and worked in a little shop called Yoder Company, 
worked with a man by the name of George Catrus. And George Catrus's son had been born mentally retarded, cerebral palsy or something. Anyway, the baby was totally helpless. And by the time that baby got to be five or six or seven years old, George and his wife had to put the baby in a home. And understandably so, because it was just so difficult for them but to take care of that baby. But Arthel and Jason Higginbotham have their daughter Marilyn, some 23 years old, still living with them, taking care of her every day, dressing her, eating her, uh, dressing her and feeding her and what have you. And all you ladies out there who think you might have a difficult life, I wish you'd think of the Arthel Higginbotham's. Think of the great burden that they have to carry through life, and yet Arthel never at any time as have I ever heard her complain about her lot in life. Now, mental retardation certainly is a tragedy. Our heart goes out, and we're sympathetic towards people with mental problems. But that's not the supreme tragedy, friends and brethren. Jesus didn't consider that to be the supreme tragedy. Remember over in the 8th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, the man that they called Legion, who the Bible says was not in his right mind? used to run through the streets naked, lived in the caves, and when they would capture him, he was so strong that he would break the fetters or the ropes that they tied him up with. Well, he had a confrontation with Jesus. And the word spread around throughout the country of the Gadarenes. And the people came together, and they were amazed or confounded because the man called Legion was sitting at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed, the Bible says, and in his right mind. So, though mental retardation is tragic, friends and brethren, it's not the supreme tragedy. People use, Jesus used people's mental retardation to glorify his Father which was in heaven. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark, he drove the, the evil spirits out of the demonic boy. He drove the seven evil spirits out of Mary Magdalene. So he used people's mental retardation to glorify his Father which was in heaven. And Jesus never considered mental retardation to be the supreme tragedy in life. Somebody else thinks that Loss of influence might be the supreme tragedy in life, and I'm going to say this about loss of influence. When a person loses his influence unjustly, that comes as close to being the supreme tragedy in life as anything I can think of without it actually being so. I've been around people who have lost. I've seen people who have lost their influence. I'm thinking of preachers right now. Used to, there was a preacher up in another state that you're not familiar with and that you'd have no idea who I was talking about or who I am talking about. But anyway, I was associated with this congregation. This preacher was accused of committing the ultimate sin with one of the ladies in the congregation. And the preacher denied the charge vehemently. But he did come before the congregation and confess to the sin of impropriety. He said he must have been too close to that lady for even anyone to think that he had committed that particular sin with her. So he confessed his sins and asked his brethren for forgiveness. Well, there were a couple of men in that congregation who just would not forgive that preacher. They went to the elders and told the elders that if the preacher wasn't dismissed, they were going to leave that congregation and they were going to take a number of people with them. One of the men said, I just can't sit out there in the audience and listen to a man preach that I even suspect of committing that particular sin. Well, the elders tried to reason with those men, told the men that the man had repented, the preacher had repented, he had denied that he had committed the ultimate sin, that the Bible teaches we're supposed to forgive and we're supposed to forget, but those men wouldn't forget if they would even forgive. And so finally, under great duress, the preacher had to leave that congregation. Well, now about a year later, that man, one of those two men, especially one that was probably the most vocal, about a year later, a man that couldn't sit out in the audience and worship under a preacher's preaching that he even suspected of committing that sin, that man ran off with another woman, left his wife and family. 
His wife is today remarried to a dedicated Christian man with every scriptural right to be remarried, still worships God and still faithful to the Lord, the last that I knew of her. That man who couldn't worship in that congregation where that preacher was preaching is not even in the church any longer, living in obviously overt sin. You know what I think of every time I see a situation like that? And I could name off many incidences, many cases, many situations that I've been involved in, very similar, where people just refuse to forgive, then wound up in the same condition of those whom they refuse to give, forgive. But I think of Paul's words in Galatians, the sixth chapter, the first verse, when he says, Brethren, if any man among you be overtaken in a fault, let ye which are spiritual restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, lest thou also be tempted. Now hear what he says. Brethren, if somebody among you is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, you go to that person with the idea of restoring that person. And you do it in a humble attitude, with the humble attitude, lest thou also be overtaken in the very same fault, lest you have the very same problem, lest your lack of forgiveness and your lack of understanding in this situation comes back to haunt you. Well, friends and brethren, that's an example of reaping in so many instances what we sow. I've never been able to understand, in light of the fact that influence is so important, why people will so blatantly in so many cases, so haphazardly, so without any sense of responsibility, say things and place labels on people that are designed to undermine their influence. And I suppose preachers are as guilty of that as anybody. I know that preachers don't like to be preached to. You know, preachers like to preach to everybody else. They like to tell everybody else how bad they are, but preachers don't want to be preached to. They don't want to be told about their sins. Well, we all need to be preached to, and I sometimes think preachers might need to be preached to more than anybody else. All of us fall short of the goodness and the glory of God. All of us need to examine our lives in light of the Bible. All of us need to examine ourselves to see whether we'd be in the faith. But there's so many preachers who are so quick to place labels on their brethren and in many instances have never even heard that brother preach a sermon, have never talked to that brother, placed the label on that brother simply through hearsay, what they've heard about the individual. Well, friends and brethren, that's as contrary to the teachings of the Bible as night is today. That is every bit as much sin as committing adultery is a sin, getting intoxicated is a sin, any other sin. When a person labels an individual without even so much as going to that individual and making an, an, an effort to resolve the problem and undermines that person's influence through many times charges that are totally false, totally foreign, well, that person has sinned and he has sinned terribly. The reason that Jesus says in Matthew the 18th chapter, beginning with the 15th verse, if your brother offends you, you go to your brother and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If you've won your brother, if your brother hears you, you've won your brother. If he won't hear you, you take with you one or two more so that every word might be established in the mouths of two or three witnesses. He'll not hear them. Take another church. If you'll not hear the church, then he should be branded unto you as a heathen and a publican. And a publican. Now, why did Jesus tell us to go through that procedure? Because, first of all, you go to the brother and you talk to him about this problem between you and him alone, and you may resolve it right then and there. Might have been a misunderstanding on your part. And if it wasn't a misunderstanding on your part, the brother might be quick to rectify the problem. It doesn't have to go any farther. Now, if you go to the brother and... You don't rectify the problem, don't resolve the problem, then you take with you one or two more. Why? So that there can be impartial witnesses because the one doing the accusing might be wrong. And if the one doing the accusing is told by these impartial witnesses that he's wrong, then he needs to repent of it, needs to be dropped right there. Well, if 
all of these witnesses agree that the accuser is right and the accused still refuses to repent, then you take it to the church. If the church agrees that the accuser is, is right and the accusee still refuses to repent, then he's to be branded unto you as a, as a heathen man and a publican. Now, friends and brethren, if we would follow the procedure that the Lord told us to follow, many problems in the brotherhood would never become problems. Because many of our problems are based on nothing but misunderstandings, on hearsay, on semantics, and what have you. And I am convinced, and I know that some people don't like this kind of preaching, but so be it. The truth is the truth, and we just have to preach the truth. I'm convinced if the devil is using a tool to hold back the restoration movement and to hold back New Testament undenominational Christianity, the tool is setting brethren against brethren, Sometimes over issues that are so inane, it must make all of hell rejoice and all of heaven weep. That is sad, friends and brethren. And it's sad that any person would unjustly lose his influence or have his influence undermined because of unjust attacks and unjust labels that have been placed before his name. Now, if a preacher or anybody else does something that justifies their losing their influence, that's a totally different situation. But when... Men are attempting in the best way that they can to stay true to the Bible and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ without addition or without subtraction. And brethren are still trying to hold those type men back and hurt those type men because maybe they don't word something exactly the way the other brother thinks it should be worded. Well, that, friends and brethren, is a great, great tragedy. It's a tragedy to compound tragedies. When people in the church is divided and brethren are set against one another, over issues that should have never become issues to begin with, how sad that must be. But as great a tragedy as that is, it's not the supreme tragedy, friends and brethren. Because in the final analysis, we all stand before God. God is our only judge. We shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account of the thing done to the body. According to that, we have done, whether it be good or whether it be bad. Second Corinthians, the 5th chapter, the 10th verse. So, loss of influence is a terrible tragedy. We've got a sign on the south side of our marquee this week. We, we receive much attention in Gadsden for the sayings that we put on our marquee from week to week. But the sign this week on the south side says, Destroy a man's influence, and you have destroyed that man and how true that is and how wrong that is. Some of the greatest preachers on the face of this earth have had their influence impugned upon at least by some people and have, has hurt their preaching. You can be the greatest preacher on this earth, but if you have no influence, you're not just you're not going to reach any people. You can be the greatest elder on the face of this earth, but if you've lost your influence, you're not going to be able to shepherd the flock in a manner that the Lord wants to shop the, the flock shepherded, shepherded. So when it comes to undermining another human being and saying things that would cause that human being to lose his influence, boy, we better be careful. We better be careful. We better make certain that we have taken, that we have gone through the biblical procedure because if we don't, and if we unjustly destroy a man's influence, and if through that man souls could have been won to the Lord, but because his influence is now lost and souls are not going to be won to the Lord, I'd hate to stand in the shoes of the person in the judgment who destroyed the man's influence and didn't allow him to take the gospel to the lost of the world and lead people to the truths of the Bible and the truths of Jesus Christ. But again, as terrible as that tragedy may be, it's not the supreme tragedy in life. Paul had many problems with people that misrepresented him, but the Lord used him in such a manner as to glorify the kingdom, to glorify Jesus Christ, to glorify the church for which Jesus died. 
Some other people might think, and I suppose most people watching this program, think that death is the supreme tragedy in life. Well, if that's a supreme tragedy, friends and brethren, we're all going to experience it. Because the Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 9 and 27, it is appointed unto man once to die, and then comes the judgment. The Bible says that we're all going to die. Ecclesiastes 9 and 5, the living know that they must die. So since death is inevitable in our lives, if that's the extreme, supreme tragedy, we're all going to experience it. But Jesus never considered it the supreme tragedy. He raised his friend Lazarus in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of John from the dead. He had the power over death itself. He taught people and showed people that physical death wasn't the supreme tragedy. He said in John 11 and 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whosoever believeth in me, though he be dead, shall live. For whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. So death, though it's a tragedy because it's a parting on this earth and because we hate to see loved ones leave this world, it's not the supreme tragedy in life. Well, I suppose by now you figured out what the supreme tragedy is. Want to read about the supreme tragedy? Read the 24th chapter of the book of Acts, where Paul preaches this great sermon about the 24th verse to the Roman procurator, the Roman governor, Felix, on faith, temperance, and the judgment to come. And Felix is so bothered by Paul's sermon, so affected by Paul's sermon, that the Bible says he shook right down to the bottom of his feet. But then he uttered those now infamous, if, I, if you will, I guess, words. Go thy way, Paul, and I'll send for thee at a more convenient season. You see, Felix believed what Paul was preaching. The very fact that he shook right down to the bottom of his feet is evidence of that truth. If a person doesn't believe what the preacher's preaching, he doesn't shake down to the bottom of his feet. He might laugh at the preacher. He might make fun of the preacher. He might joke about what the preacher said, but he doesn't shake down to the bottom of his feet. The very fact that Felix shook is evidence that he believed what Paul was preaching. But he just didn't want to give up sin at that time in his life. There was a woman that he was associated with at that time who undoubtedly was not his wife. And who he had no right to her. Was in an immoral relationship with her. And he didn't want to give that up. He said, well, Paul, there will be a more convenient season. There will be a better time, an easier time to turn to the Lord. Well, there's no indication that that convenient season ever came. And there's no indication that, that uh, Felix ever did turn to the Lord. Friends and brethren, let me say this. As certain as I'm standing before you, what I'm saying is true. There will never be a more convenient time to obey the Lord or to come into a covenant relationship with the Lord than right now. It doesn't make any difference how many years you live from now. If you think five years from now is going to be a more convenient season or ten years from now or fifteen years from now, you're sadly mistaken. Five years from now, you're going to have things in your life that you aren't going to want to give up. Ten years from now, you're going to have things in life that you won't want to give up. Fifteen years from now, you're going to have things in your life you won't want to give up. There is no better time to obey the Lord than right now. There's never a more convenient season. Now is the acceptable time. Now is the acceptable hour. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, the sixth chapter, the second verse. And if a person says, I'm going to wait for the more convenient season, well, the chances are astronomical that he'll be just like Felix was, that there'll never be a convenient season, and he'll die in his sins. Read the 26th chapter of the book of Acts, where Paul preaches that great sermon to King Agrippa. King Agrippa says, Almost, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Paul said, I would to God that not only thou, but all those who hear me this day, we're not only almost, but all together as I am, except for these bonds. Paul said, almost, King Agrippa, but that's not enough. 
Almost, but you're still lost. Almost, but your relationship with God is not what it's supposed to be. Almost, but if you don't do as God has told you to do, you're going to be lost time without end. There's the supreme tragedy, friends and brethren. To die and to leave this world not in a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ. That's the supreme tragedy. To be separated from God for a never-ending eternity. That's the supreme tragedy. One can go through this life blind. But when he leaves this, but if he's right with the Lord, he leaves this, when he leaves this world, God's going to give him new eyes. One can go through this life with physical impairments. But if he's right with God, when he leaves this world, God's going to give him a new body. One can go through this life mentally retarded. But if he's right with God in the next world, God's going to give him a new mind. One can go through this life without the proper influence, having his influence unjustly destroyed. But in heaven, all his influence is going to be restored. God will restore his influence. doesn't make any difference what you think about in this life. If, when it passes with this life, it can't be the supreme tragedy. If it ends with this life, it can't be the supreme tragedy. But if a person is separated from God a billion years from now, will that not be the supreme tragedy? To go throughout eternity and be lost, to go throughout eternity in pain and in torment, won't that be the supreme tragedy? That is the supreme tragedy, friends and brethren, to die without Jesus Christ, to die in less than a covenant relationship with Jesus. How do you come into a covenant relationship with Jesus? Well, you have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. If you believe not in me, Jesus said, you'll die in your sins. You must repent of your sins. In Luke 13 and 3, unless you repent, you shall all likewise perish. You must be willing to confess Jesus before men. Matthew 10 and 32, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father, which is in heaven. You must be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. When you do that, when you meet these conditions, you appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ to your life, and the blood of Jesus Christ redeems you and cleanses you. Ephesians 1 and 7, Colossians 1 and 14, 1 Peter 1, 1 and 18 and 19. It's the blood of Christ that saves us, friends and brethren. And the blood of Christ saves us when we are obedient to Jesus by believing, repenting, confessing before men, being baptized into him for the mission of our sins, and living the Christian life to the very best of our ability. Don't experience the supreme tragedy. You don't have to experience it. The choice is yours. Jesus died for you so you wouldn't have to experience that supreme tragedy. Come unto him so that he can save you and you can be with him for that never-ending eternity. Thank you so much for watching the program.